0: Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's d r h e d b e r g.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Uh,
1: this is Dr. Hedberg, thanks for tuning in. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Functional Medicine Research. I'm Dr. Hedberg, and I'm really looking forward to my conversation today with Dr. Ethan Will Taylor. And Dr. Taylor is a pharmacologist, computational chemist, and virologist. He has a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the University of Winnipeg and a PhD in pharmacology and toxicology from the University of Arizona. He began his career as Assistant Professor of Medicinal Chemistry and later Professor of Pharmaceutical and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. He's currently Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where he has also served as a founding member of the Department of Neuroscience and as Director of the Biosafety Level 3 Laboratory. Dr. Taylor has been engaged in research on HIV, Ebola, and other emerging infectious diseases for over 25 years and is best known for his work on the role and mechanisms of the dietary trace element selenium in reducing the pathophysiological effects of various RNA viruses. He's also an amateur musician and with his wife, uh, Maria, he operates the Dharma Farm Animal Refuge and Vegan Event Center in Archdale, North Carolina. But Dr. Taylor, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Right. So I want to have someone on the show who has some excellent expertise in some of our, our biggest issues today in the world. Some of this will revolve around the current pandemic, as well as we'll talk about the, uh, how the consumption of animals is leading to pandemics and how it's affecting our environment before we jump into those details, can you give us just a general overview of your research interests and the work that you've done?
0: Sure. Uh, as As you stated in the bio, you know, I, my background was in sort of pharmaceutical sciences, which means you're 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 looking at drugs and how drugs work and designing better drugs, and uh, so I had that kind of background. Um, and I was a pharmacy professor for 18 years, but the more I studied, you know, uh, drugs and how they work, you come to realize that um, a lot of, most of the drugs we have, a lot of them treat symptoms. We have some phenomenal drugs. They're really great to have when you're, you're doing surgery on people and uh, things like that. And many of the drugs work well, but a lot of them Really, just treat symptoms, and I became kind of more interested in you know what's what 's really the underlying cause of this pathogenic effect and and that led me inevitably to nutrition and being interested in nutrition and part of it was a ser- sort of a serendipitous almost accidental discovery that I made when I was studying HIV that led me to this trace element of uh, selenium that you mentioned and um So, you know, that has kind of been my background, but I I essentially evolved into this area of looking at, uh, became very interested in antioxidants, uh, selenium in particular, um, and uh, its role in viral diseases, uh, particularly RNA virus diseases. And along the way, um, just my my family were vegetarians and became my kids became vegans before my wife and I did and then we became vegans for a lot of reasons um, and uh, people do that for different reasons health kind of health reasons uh, uh, but there's also environmental reasons ethical reasons and uh, i be, I became kind of interested as a sideline in this whole topic of uh, you know, what What does the fact that humans exploit animals to such an extent, primarily to eat them, uh, what are the implications of that for things like diseases? Because as you study r- of RNA virus diseases in particular, a lot of them are so-called emerging infectious diseases, which when you look at the the history of it all, it's very clear that these have tended to enter the human population through interactions with animals, usually because of people eating the animals. So there you have it. There's a kind of a, a smoking gun, and we can get into that, I'm sure, in this discussion.
1: Right. So, you know, you became a vegan uh, because of a concern of the impact of of animals, and now we're seeing an impact of eating animals on infectious diseases. So, can you talk a little bit about the origins of pandemics and how that connects with human activity and how our relationship with animals and eating them has led to these pandemics.
0: Sure. Well, the one that most people are familiar with is bird flu, of course, that's the the big, uh, and, and influenza, uh, outbreaks in general, uh, People are know that oh, there's something called bird flu, and when that comes it's going to mutate and it'll be a, a very serious flu flu pandemic. What they don't may perhaps realize is that virtually all flu uh, uh, serious flu outbreaks uh, in the that have happened historically have come because of exchanges of influenza viruses between humans. And birds and and uh, pigs in particular, so basically sort of livestock animal and uh, birds that are consumed, domesticated birds, but birds those birds are interacting with wild uh, birds who are can carry the viruses over large geographic distances and it's it's in the exchange of uh, what we call recombination. Uh, of different fragments of this virus between the different species that will lead to a new strain that humans have not really been uh, exposed to that much and they haven't adapted to and then you have a much more serious outbreak. So the people are sort of aware of that example, but but perhaps they're less aware that some of the most notorious pandemics uh, of of recent times have also in every single case, pretty much uh, been traced to a case where humans were, pr- were probably were eating animals. And so, for instance, HIV is a big one. And uh, we now know that there's very, very similar immunodeficiency viruses in, in in primates, what we call simian immunodeficiency viruses. And some of those, especially the ones in chimpanzees, are extremely close genetically to HIV-1 and HIV-2. Um, and they've pretty much, you know, traced. Uh, there, there's in my opinion, uh, pretty much indisputable evidence that uh, the virus was transmitted to humans from chimpanzees, and and those are uh, like many monkeys were were prey animals that were used for food in Africa. So there's there you have it for HIV. Then if you look at Ebola, when, a virus that everyone's absolutely terrified of, uh, they've pretty much been able to trace the alpha case uh, or the, the the patient zero of um, the, I guess, the initial uh, Ebola outbreak in 76 that kind of made it uh, the world aware of the of the virus, uh, to a individual guy who traveled between a couple of places and he he ate a couple of different animals along the way. Um, And uh, certainly, and in more recent Ebola outbreak in uh, 2014-2015, Uh, they traced it to bats, and bats are also eaten in West Africa as well as in Asia. And then we have, of course, more recently, people are again aware about the coronavirus outbreaks, that uh, the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003 originated probably probably the virus, the, the reservoir was bats, but that was transmitted to some species like civet cats that were sold in markets in China and that led to the, the virus getting the human population and they suspect something pretty similar with the new coronavirus that it was uh transmitted through these wet markets through some kind of species there's debate over the some of the intermediate species But, you know, they have, again, bats are sold as food and they have these markets where animals are stacked, cages of animals are stacked on top of each other. And they have, uh, uh, I guess, pangolins was another another illegal food source that uh, they've found very closely related viruses in. Um, And uh, they're still kind of trying to trace exactly uh, what, what the path between species was, but it's pretty certain that if humans hadn't been eating these animals um, and also encroaching on their environments, uh, these outbreaks, these pandemics, probably would not have started. So those are the most uh, notorious ones.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And then you had mentioned uh, flu variants. You know, So let's say a pig is infected with a flu virus and then another virus and then the human consumes it. And then there's, uh, I believe you call it genetic mixing of those viruses, and then you can get a a very difficult virus to deal with. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that genetic mixing in animals and what happens when we eat them?
0: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it's hard to say if we actually... Acquire the virus through eating the animal. What if we, you know, because we usually cook the meat. Although when you have un- uncooked meat, you can certainly have various infections. Uh, you know, things like salmonella uh, transmitted or E. coli, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's it's in the animal handling stages probably that uh, we have transmission, and then that gets into uh, uh, you know, f- get us into the farmers or the the, the uh, animal processing workers and then gets into our public health system and transmitted to general population. But there's a couple of different mechanisms. Um, a virus, uh, an avian virus can sort of mutate directly to become more infectious to humans um, or it can be transmitted through a secondary species like like pigs in particular in which uh, th- that is also a part of human. So there might be a human flu virus and a bird flu virus, and a pig gets infected with both of those, and that's when this genetic mixing, or what's called reassortment, happens. Um, so you can have either this kind of direct. So for instance, the famous uh, now the, they're, everyone's talking about the 1918 you know flu epidemic as kind of a precedent for the pandemic we're experiencing now with coronavirus. And that virus probably was an example of what's called a direct adaptation, where a bird flu just mutated to become more infectious to humans, whereas there's um, uh, other examples where, uh, for instance, the 2009 H1N1, they're pretty sure it was this reassortment where a bird and a pig and a human uh, species were all kind of mixed up together and led to uh, uh, that particular species, which luckily was not highly lethal to humans. The 2009 outbreak, it, it actually spread far more widely than people realize, but it was a luckily a fairly low pathogenicity uh, for humans. But um, by 2010, there was actually a billion people were infected with the the H1N1. But, and uh, 200,000 died. So that, proportionally, that's that's not such a lethal flu, luckily. Um, so there's various ways that can unfold. And, um, and some of it's a little bit unique to flu because flu has what's called a, a segmented genome. So it has individual pieces of RNA that different genes are carried on. And so it's kind of easier for it to kind of mix up a different assortment of those. Um, Whereas coronavirus, for instance, you know, has, has has one long continuous piece of RNA that all of its genes are on, and it's uh, it, it's not quite as prone to that kind of mechanism, but uh, more of a kind of a point mutation kind of evolution. So, mm-hmm. now, now you asked about you know I, I mentioned this point about food, you know that that usually because food is cooked. Um, uh, we don't actually directly acquire the virus from food, but there may be exceptions to that. One and exa- one case may be milk, uh, because uh, there's this interesting study that was done um, uh, in about two, 2015 where they showed that uh, there's a very high incidence of um, uh, bovine leukemia virus, which is a type of retrovirus, a relative of HIV that infects uh, cows and it's very widespread in uh, dairy herds. Uh, Basically, uh, if you look at a large dairy herd of 500 or more, um, it's it's almost 100% certain that some of those cows will test positive for uh, antibodies to bovine leukemia virus, so that some of them are infected. Um, And even in smaller herds, less than 100 cows, a uh, high percentage uh, will um, will have at least some cows that, and because they pool the milk. So there's a, an interesting potential for human uh, milk consumers to be possibly exposed to this virus. And where it becomes compelling is that this 2015 study I mentioned uh, was published in the journal PLOS One. And um, they actually showed uh, that, that you can detect this bovine leukemia virus in human mammary breast uh, tissue, um, and that if you're positive for that, you have a threefold higher um, risk of breast cancer. So there's definitely an association between exposure to this bovine virus that's carried in uh, milk cows and a risk of breast cancer. So uh, that's a fairly uh, unusual and direct case where perhaps actual food consumers, uh, not just food you know, processors, are, are at high risk of exposure.
1: I'd like to take a quick moment to make you aware of some important resources that are available to you. The first is to make you aware that I not only see patients in my practice in Asheville, North Carolina, but I also have a virtual practice where I consult with patients worldwide through telehealth So it doesn't matter where you live in the world. We could consult through our telehealth software. The second resource is the resources page on my website where I list all of the supplements and products I use both personally and in my practice. This can be found at drhedberg.com forward slash resources. And the third resource is for healthcare practitioners who want to learn functional medicine or improve their functional medicine skills. I offer online functional medicine courses at the Hedberg Institute, which is my online functional medicine education platform. You can see all the courses I offer at HedbergInstitute.com and sign up to watch a sample course video at no charge. That's HedbergInstitute.com. And now back to the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that distinction regarding... Eating versus handling, because I do think a lot of people believe that you can get some of these viruses through eating particular food. But as you said, it's it's really the handling of the animals that are infected uh, with the viruses. But bacteria is another one that uh, we can get pretty commonly from eating eating animals, and that leads me to ask you just a little bit about antimicrobial drug resistance because you've done some work on this and so we do have some issues with antibiotics and um, bugs who are resistant to antibiotics and unfortunately you know drug companies they're mainly focused on medications that people can take for long periods of time rather than an antibiotic because you're only on an antibiotic for say seven to ten days so there isn't much as much profit in antibiotics, as there are in other types of medications. And so there just isn't as much uh, money going into that, as much research, unfortunately. So, can you talk a little bit about how eating animals and our relationships with animals leads to antimicrobial drug resistance?
0: Yes, well, um, I think one of the factors there. The the driving factors is the fact that you know the 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 livestock industry has discovered you know that if you give antibiotics to animals um, uh, and and if you really kind of pump them up in some cases with high levels of antibiotics they actually uh, get fatter they they seem to you know yield more meat you know but of course this is they've also discovered that okay we realize that you're now encouraging the antibiotic resistance, because the more you use antibiotics, the more the, the bugs have a chance to evolve and, and mutate in a way that uh, lets them resist antibiotics. So in, in this country, there's been uh, an attempt to cut back on antibiotic use in any kind of sort of livestock situations. The problem is, even if we outlaw this in, in the United States, uh, there's uh, other parts of the world where there is increasing demand for meat and if you look at in Asia so if they're using antibiotics in their livestock uh, in in different places parts of Asia and antibiotic resistance is developing in those animals there's also a, a huge amount of international um, traffic of, of animals of farm animals Uh between, even between Asia and say the United States and Mexico, I think in that 2009, some of the, some of the pigs in Mexico might've been transported from China. I'm not totally sure about that, but also uh, once that, once those drug resistant uh, microbes have evolved, it's just a matter of time before they can spread worldwide. So so even if we're doing a good job of trying to limit these antibiotics in, in, in livestock industry, we're at the mercy of other people in the world. I mean, you just have to look at sort of graphs showing increased meat consumption. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of data out there. Uh, as you know, I have a presentation about this and um, I show data from different countries where they've looked at uh, poultry, for instance, and just looked at drug resistance, the the percentage of of isolates uh, of these bacteria that they get uh, from their poultry uh, populations. And the incidence of drug resistance to various classes of antibiotics are are quite frighteningly high in many cases. Getting up to over fifty percent resistance to certain antibiotics in certain countries, so that means that a whole class of antibiotics, you know, whether it be ampicillin or tetracyclines or, you know, chloramphenicol or the you know uh, um, ciprofloxacin class of, of drugs, uh, some of which are very important in uh, you know certain types of uh, medical care, uh, and then if you have just increased resistance. And, and the, there's there's a nice document that the CDC puts out uh, where they have the statistics on the incidence uh, of drug-resistant bacteria infections um, nationwide and what the, the medical cost is. And it's just staggering. You're, you, for different drug-resistant, uh, say, just salmonella, uh, Then th- th- this is older data from like a 2016 report or something. Uh, there was 365 million dollars in medical costs treating drug-resistant salmonella, and that's already probably out of date and has probably increased since then. Uh, So um, it's a a huge burden on our public health system.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. So let's get into COVID-19, because that's the real elephant in the room right now. And you've actually published some papers already on COVID-19. And so can you tell us a little bit about some of your key findings on, on COVID-19 and your research?
0: Yeah, yeah. We actually published our fourth peer-reviewed paper since April just two days ago. It <laughs> went online. So we've been, that my I'm working with an international team. We've been doing, working quite madly. Like many people, scientists all over the world are just going crazy trying to, you know, find solutions for this pandemic. So, um, As I mentioned, i had been doing research on this trace element, selenium in particular, and viral infections for for many years, mostly on HIV, where it's proven to be a pretty important factor in uh, helping you resist uh, the more severe outcomes. And we suspected the same thing would happen when we heard about the COVID outbreak. Uh, I actually had already worked on the SARS virus. I I'd looked at SARS back in 2003, once they first sequenced the genome of that virus, and I'd found some genetic signatures that told me uh, there's probably going to be a link between uh, selenium status and uh, and mortality or or severity of uh, outcome of this disease. And I actually went to, uh, the Chinese government invited me to Beijing to present these results in 2003. I, I hooked up with a guy, Dr. Jin Song Zhang, who's been a collaborator of mine since, and he actually had some evidence of selenium related abnormalities in SARS patients. So we had, we had already done this, this work way back then, but of course the SARS outbreak, unlike COVID, uh, was contained because it's not so transmissible. It's 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 more lethal when you get it, but it's far more difficult to transmit. Even though it's still pretty easy, they were pretty terrified of it, but they managed to contain it, which is why the Chinese went to such lengths to try to contain uh, the the COVID-19 uh, uh, outbreak because they they had successfully done it years ago with with SARS. But anyway, when the uh, you know these genetic sequences of this virus came out. Um, I started looking at it, but I hooked up again with Dr. Zhang, and um, we we knew it would probably be fairly easy to tell if there was some relationship with selenium status in the Chinese population, because there's a history there of, of diseases going back into the early and mid 20th century, that, because China, it's a huge country, and it's got some sort of geological features, uh, geographical features that, that lead to some regions with very low selenium in the soils and some regions that have very high, uh, which are often a volcanic soil. Um, uh, but uh, in any case, they'd had problems with a certain couple of d- types of diseases that they have f- had figured out in the past were m- more severe and more common uh, in these low selenium regions, and that if they supplemented their population with uh, uh, selenium supplements, you know, that they would have a, be able to reduce the mortality and the incidence of this disease. So because of that, there's a lot of data on, on uh, the selenium status of people in different Uh, even in different cities in China. So we were able to find that published data. It's actually what they do is one of the more accurate measurements is to take it, cut some hair from a person and you measure the amount of selenium in that hair sample. And that is a very good indicator of what their sort of long-term dietary intake is. Uh, It it doesn't fluctuate as much as even like a blood level. So that we, we were able to get that published data. And of course the, as the COVID outbreak, uh, progressed, they were getting the case and mortality data city by city, county by county, state by state, just like we do here. So we just you know, connected those dots, and we published a paper at the end of April in the uh, um, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition where we showed that there was a highly significant correlation between the selenium status uh, in these different Chinese cities and the um, what was called a cure rate, uh, that is the, f- the fraction of people that recovered from being infected by COVID, and uh, also if you just looked at a couple of cities that were or, or regions that were notorious for either having very low selenium or very high selenium, um, there's a city called Enshi where uh, it's one of the highest selenium intakes in the world to the point where they've had toxicity uh, from the from the mineral uh, and. The, in that city, the cure rate for COVID was three times higher than that in uh, the other parts of uh, Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is is located, where the outbreak started. And similarly, this area in another province called Heilongjiang, there's a region called Keshan, where there was a disease called Keshan disease, which was a selenium deficiency disease that had a virus cofactor, uh, and in that region, the death rate from COVID was five times higher than in all the surrounding regions. So that's a pretty compelling, and, and the statistical analysis on all of those said that the probability level of P was less than 0. 0001, 0.0001, part in one in 10,000 chance of that that observation happening uh, by just randomly. So we thought it was a pretty strong thing. Now, now since then, a German group has actually Published similar findings based on actual measurements of selenium levels in the patients of, in in COVID patients in uh, in Germany, and compared it to sort of uh, standard levels in Europeans in a in a known in a database. And they also showed that the patients with the lowest selenium status were most likely to um, uh, die of uh, or have more severe like ICU type case. So, uh, and I we've just heard that the. There's another study coming out from another country that shows a similar trend. So this very striking um, uh, kind of uh, retrospective data now showing that this is important. Now to get into the why is this important, um, it's hard to do without getting into some biology and what is the role of selenium in the uh, sort of the human immune system and uh, in human biology in general. And also what is its role in what the virus might want to do? Um, and I could give you a quick elevator speech of that if you want me to have a go at it um, and try not mm-hmm. to get technical. Oh yeah. Sure. Well basically by you know it took me you know 20 plus years to figure this out, the last piece of the puzzle, but during the Ebola outbreak in 2014, 2015, I, I finally you know figured out part of that um, that led me to realization that basically, uh, the way I, I would say it is this: that it turns out that the, the, the selenium is incorporated into different proteins, a class what's called selenoproteins, uh, and a lot of those have antioxidant type of functions in your body, and they they keep your your cell membranes from going rancid by peroxidation, you know. So they they neutralize oxygen radicals. Uh, so they're often in peroxidases and. Uh, uh, reductases, you know, things that t- basically neutralize oxidation. And one of the places um, where they play a role is in the synthesis of DNA. So there's a pro- one of the selenoproteins is kind of essential to keep the synthesis of DNA going in your cells. And people might have heard of another molecule called RNA. One is r- ribonucleic acid, and one is deoxy DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, which means you have to reduce a ribose, the sugar ribose, to turn it into deoxyribose. And that's basically a sort of an antioxidant function and selenium is involved in that step. So um, if you're an RNA virus, you actually uh, would rather slow that process down because when when your body converts ribose to deoxyribose, you're using up stuff that you could make RNA to make DNA. And all of these viruses, interestingly, they're all RNA viruses, right? And you look at them, uh, you, know, you know, HIV, Ebola, Zika virus, uh, coronaviruses, influenza viruses, they all have RNA genomes. And so when the virus takes over your cell, what it wants to do is make a ton of RNA. And when your cell is trying to use some of that RNA stuff to make it into DNA, that's actually bad for the virus. So therefore, there's kind of a natural antagonism between this role of selenium trying to help make DNA. And so when you have less in your diet, uh, that actually facilitates, makes it easier for the virus to make more RNA. And and it goes beyond that. What we found with coronavirus, which is even more amazing, it's actually got an active uh, strategy to disrupt These DNA synthesis related uh, functions. So, one of our, a couple of our papers, a paper I just published, and a paper that we've got uh, that came from some collaborators I have at the China CDC, uh, we've basically shown that coronavirus is actually inhibiting the synthesis of certain selenoproteins. That, amongst other things, are involved in this process of making DNA, so the virus is actually trying to block this and mess up the function of selenoproteins mm-hmm. in your body and the and the collateral damage of that is going to be oxidative stress, increased risk of cell death, and a whole bunch of other things that lead to, in our opinion, a part of the pathogenic profile of the virus so that 's why um, it seems like uh, uh, these these retrospective studies are saying if you have a higher selenium status then the impact of that on you is going to be much less and uh if you have a very low selenium status when the virus starts trying to you know block those functions even more then then you're in more likely to be in trouble clinically so that's the mm-hmm. the, the way i would try to explain it in a simple way mm-hmm.
1: excellent yeah very clear and uh also, vitamin D is also has a connection with selenium. Can you talk about the interplay between those two?
0: Yeah, well, certainly that's another one where, um, you know, the, it's actually gotten more press uh, nationally and internationally than selenium has. Um, even Fauci at one point said something about he thought those vitamin D correlations were interesting and that it could be important. And what people need to know about vitamin D is it's not the typical vitamin. Most vitamins are kind of cofactors for enzymes that make certain enzymes work better and and certain things in your body work better. But vitamin D is much more like a hormone. It's it's more like cortisone or something like that. It's like a steroid basically that essentially turns a whole bunch of genes on. Um, And some of the genes that are activated by vitamin D are involved in antioxidant defense and sort of anti-inflammatory responses, uh, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and and specifically some of these same selenoproteins that are involved in DNA synthesis. So so essentially uh, vitamin D is kind of, working with or uh, uh, synergizing with the, the role of selenium and selenoproteins, vitamin D is basically upregulating the mRNA expression of these genes and then they're a, a gene for a selenium containing protein so you have to have the element to put in there. So so that's why I think the two of them work together and if you're deficient in vitamin D or selenium then you know you'll, you'll have less of uh, Uh, an effect. And so it's just interesting that some of these same genes that we're suggesting in our recent research are being targeted um, by the virus, either at the protein level or at the RNA level, are the same genes that vitamin D is trying to turn up uh, as part of its response. So that kind of helps explain why this, uh, this, this nutrient is also important. So In in my personal regimen, like what I take to try to boost my uh, resistance to such viruses is I'm taking vitamin D and selenium together uh, because I think there's even a paper, 20 year old paper from Germany, where they looked at a specific protein called thyroreduction reductase, which is one of the key ones that's involved in this DNA synthesis process, and which we show is being targeted by the coronavirus. Uh, actually the coronavirus protease looks like it's trying to chop it up to make it non-functional. And it turns out that for the biosynthesis of thyroreduction reductase and for its, its, its enzymatic activity, you have to have both vitamin D and selenium levels, uh, you know, at, at at a, at a good level. Uh, so that pretty much proves that you need that these two nutrients together, uh, to get the best result.
1: Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously if, if there's a selenium, a selenium deficiency in, uh, in the soil in a certain area, then the population will most likely have, lower levels based on the research you've read or or what, you know, or maybe there isn't that much out there on on this, but are there any other reasons uh, that you're aware of that will cause a selenium deficiency in an individual, even if they are eating adequate amounts of selenium?
0: Uh, Well, one is um, certain types of heavy metal toxicity and uh, mercury in particular. Uh, has been shown that they're they're kind of like, uh, you know, antagonistic to each other, uh, essentially forming complexes that neutralize. Now, because of that, uh, selenium can be important as a detoxifying thing. So, for instance, we've heard that there's a place somewhere in Alberta, in Canada, where they had some very high selenium soil. So, apparently, they've been growing a bunch of lentils, Uh, and sending them to Bangladesh or something where there's a region with very high mercury levels. Mm -hmm. I I think it's mercury or no, it might be arsenic. There's a similar thing with arsenic. Um, So both mercury and arsenic toxicity can be neutralized by ingesting very high, you know, reasonably high levels of selenium containing foods. So they're they're sort of making these, you know, these, what would normally been considered a, you know, an overdose of selenium from these lentils uh, is actually a, um, detoxifying uh, dose against, I believe it's arsenic in, in there. And I, th- I think the same thing came into play in um, with Zika virus. We haven't really talked about Zika in Brazil. It was very interesting that... Uh, the incidence uh, cases of microcephaly where, where there was the, the, you know there 's been plenty of neurological damage in neonates from Zika virus, even in this country, but there hasn 't been a really high incidence of the explicit uh, microcephaly syndrome where the, where the where the cranium is 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 very small abnormally small, but that was very common in the uh, initial uh, outbreak in Brazil, which is part of what brought the world 's attention to that. And my, my, one of, a theory that I would propose is that this could be, because there's actually quite a lot of mercury, high levels of mercury in Brazil in different regions. Uh, some of it's from possibly pollution from gold mining, but a lot of it actually comes from the fact that the, that the rainforest is being burned because there's a lot of, a certain level of mercury in the natural environment but it gets dispersed throughout the biosphere so there's there's a certain low level of mercury in in all of these plants in the jungle and when they burn uh, the jungle all of that is reduced to ash and carbon dioxide and the ash contains concentrated levels of mercury which then gets into groundwater and streams and and so on in rivers and so uh the, we believe there's a role of selenium in Zika virus pathogenesis, uh, um, along the lines of what we were saying for COVID, but but in kind of a more specific, customized way, that Zika virus is is doing it, and uh, and it it turns out here just th- this is where the interesting thing about Zika is, and uh, this was a piece of research I I hadn't heard of until Zika came along, and I started doing some research on it. Uh, it turns out there 's a genetic disease that 's uh, uh called p c c a uh progressive cerebellocerebral cerebral atrophy, which is a fancy phrase for, to mean that you progressively your your the cerebellum and and the cerebrum of your brain are 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 atrophying and it 's basically the primary symptom of this it 's a genetic disease. Um, and it, it causes microcephaly, uh, in the children that are born with this. And it's kind of progressive that it gets worse and worse as they get older. And, uh, this disease was first defined in the early two thousands. And then it took them about five or seven years. They finally identified the genetic defect, um, that was causing this. And and the disease was observed in, uh, populations of Sephardic Jews in, I think, Iraq and in uh, Morocco. Uh, and uh, and basically, it turned out the genetic defect was that the children uh, born with this disease are completely incapable of making a selenium-containing protein. So there's basically, you know, um, it's a defect in the selenocysteine tRNA. Uh, and so they cannot incorporate the amino acid selenocysteine into a protein and all of their, uh, so they don't have any of the antioxidant defenses afforded uh, by these selenoproteins. And so what we are suggesting with Zika is that Zika is sort of creating an artificially is mimicking this disease because it's interacting, it's blocking one specific uh, selenoprotein, which is responsible for distributing uh, uh, selenium into the brain. So therefore it's basically mimicking this this uh, genetic disease. Um, and we haven't really, uh, because Zika is another one that uh, kind of has gone off the radar and um, with that work, I've actually got one, a grad student working on that trying to prove this mechanism and uh, work. We're getting some interesting results but it, it's going to be um, a while I think before that, Theory is really confirmed actually in patients because there there's just a lot of challenges in, in proving such a mechanism.
1: Hmm. And have you seen anything about the vicinity of populations to coal plants, coal burning plants, and a reduction in selenium in the soil, and any any disease associations um. there?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one, because um, there's there was a guy at uh, Oregon State University years ago, like in around 1960s or something, he, he predicted that there was going to be a progressive decline of selenium in the food chain because of acid rain. And the chemistry of that's pretty simple. That basically, you can take... Um, uh, make sulfur dioxide gas, and uh, which you can get just from burning some sulfur, and uh, and bubble it into a solution of, say, sodium selenite, um, uh, and it'll precipitate elemental selenium. So, which is kind of a red uh, powderous material. So, the, the idea is that if you have acid rain uh, coming down. Uh, into your soil, and you have these inorganic selenium compounds, that it will reduce it to elemental selenium, which which um, plants cannot absorb. Uh, and therefore, you've essentially, you know, interfered with the bioavailability of it. Now, so, so there's, there's plenty of reason for thinking this is going on. Uh, I know that the University of Georgia, where I was a professor for many years, in, uh, in about 2012, the, their agriculture division published a study about uh, uh, forage plants all over the state of Georgia, and they were raising an alarm that others oh, just are a remarkably low level uh, of, of selenium in in crops in Georgia. So this is probably possibly an ongoing thing. You know, a lot of people seem to think, oh, there's yeah, this it, there's variation in the soils in in different parts of, of say the United States. Um, which are partly geological features, but then partly aggravated by this acid rain problem. So, for instance, the whole northeast, which is the oldest industrial region of the country, there's there's quite low selenium levels um, in the soils and uh, and in crops grown there. One of the more interesting stories about that uh, that I heard was um, had to do with uh, the bighorn sheep uh, in. Uh, I can't remember if it was in Wyoming or, or where uh, it's one of the states. I think it might be Wyoming where the bighorn is their, their state animal. And it was observed that um, the young uh, uh, sheep were having problems. Uh, they were kind of, you know, um, weak and having a hard time thriving. And some, somebody in the um, sort of conservation department of the government became a uh, developed this idea that, well, maybe it's because they're not getting enough selenium in their, their diets. And because they, they observed that when the when the parent sheep took their young up to these salt licks in certain places, that then they got better results. So they were actually able to do it. And so they went up to the top of the mountains in the Rockies and they uh, took some plant samples and went back and analyzed them and found that essentially the, the selenium level in these plants was so low that it was inadequate to support mammalian life. <laughs> uh, and of course th- this is where we have the big cities on the west coast uh, um, that are you know, chugging out lots of um, fossil fuel uh, exhaust that is uh, also got um, sulfur oxides and nitric oxides and coming down as acid rain in the mountains And if this mechanism is causing a loss of bioavailability um, in these plants, that if it can happen essentially to uh, animals, then it it, uh, can happen to us too. So, and it seems to be confirmed in different levels. So there could be an ongoing concern that there is a decrease of selenium in our diet because of this, uh, again, another consequence of fossil fuel burning. Now, the 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 other side of that is, yeah, you know, coal also has its own. Uh, it has a certain content of selenium that that is released in the atmosphere when it, when it is burned, and which is deposited. But the question is, you know, which effect predominates? You know, and is it deposited in a form which is more bioavailable or not? Um, so it's a very complex environmental issue. Um, Mm-hmm. That it's a little bit beyond my expertise, um, but I hope at some point somebody looks at it more more closely. I, I, we actually tried to start a project, um, or, or had an idea for a project to to get look at tree rings, and look at the uh, concentration of selenium in tree rings, so you could go back a hundred years or something, and just see what's happening in different parts of the country, and is is there a decrease in selenium content? Um, towards more recent times. But this uh, is something, yet another concern about uh, why we need to get out of fossil fuels.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a study published years ago that took place here in Asheville where they did hair samples of individuals and uh, they did tend to have much higher levels of mercury than, uh, the general population. And they were looking at that because we're, we're east of the Tennessee Valley authority, uh, Uh, many, many coal plants in Tennessee and, uh, the, uh, pollution blows East into this area. And then we do have, um, a few coal plants in this area as well. And so we just have to wonder if, even if it isn't altering the soil, uh, are we getting more mercury from the coal plants and then the selenium in our body is binding right. to that mercury?
0: Yeah. Well, that's why it's, it's one nutrient. You know, I'm, I'm a real advocate of whole foods diets and getting as much of your nutrition from a good diet as possible. But I do think it's one nutrient that because of all of these complex issues and it's such a, at such low levels, and you know some people say, "Oh, we eat Brazil nuts." Well, what if these Brazil nuts come from a part of Brazil where there's a lot of mercury, and you have mercury in there with it? It might completely neutralize the effect and actually, you know, have an opposite effect. So it's one that I just think it's it's the simplest, it's the cheapest dietary supplement that there is. So it's pr- it's probably just safest to take a, a supplement, a selenium supplement, uh, to be sure that you're getting um, what you what you need. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And the standard dose that are in the, you know, the products that uh, I use in practice is usually around 200 micrograms per capsule and multivitamins will usually have somewhere around a hundred to 200 micrograms. Based on your research, is that a good range or are you seeing a yeah, little yeah, bit more, a little less?
0: That's a good, that's a, that's a good level. And it's certainly not a level that, you know, should be harmful, um, and there's really not and there could actually be a, a counter uh, influence of taking more. Now, you know, there could be some cases that, that certainly for long-term, you know, dietary supplementation to build up your resistance and sort of get to a higher level uh, there is some evidence that there could be pharmacological effects of selenium-type compounds, which are, can vary from one compound to another. Uh, and, and so actually, we just put the, the, I, I mentioned we just had a, our, our most recent paper uh, published uh, yesterday, went online, uh, and uh, in the journal Redux Biology, and it's basically a comprehensive review of all the possible molecular mechanisms whereby selenium could be acting... Uh, against COVID to explain these all these clinical observations. Um, But one of the mechanisms involves not not via these uh, selenium containing proteins, selenoproteins, but via um, actions of the sort of small metabolites. Uh, So there's some tantalizing studies. So for instance there was an outbreak in Mongolia uh, decades ago, of a hantavirus infection, uh, they call they call this epidemic hemorrhagic fever, uh, and it's common in Asia and even all the way over into uh, the Nordic countries. Uh, you'll get this. It's it's a mouse-borne virus infection, um, and it manifests. It can have a kind of a, a pulmonary syndrome, uh, or it can also have a hemorrhagic syndrome, and. Uh, Anyway, this old Chinese guy, um, Dr. Ho, decided he had his own theory of why selenium might be involved, and he treated people in this particular outbreak with um, two milligrams a day of sodium selenite um, for nine days. So it was just a short term, essentially a pharmacological use of, of selenium. And that works out to, you know, 900 plus micrograms a day. So most nutritionists would be appalled. Oh my God, you can't give someone 900 micrograms a day. That's way too toxic. But that's only true if if you take it for months and months, uh, uh, short term. In, in Europe, uh, it's become a standard practice to use milligram doses of sodium selenite uh, you know, for a number of days to treat sepsis and uh, other kind of inflammatory syndromes. In, uh, in intensive care, and it's become, you know, there's been a lot of studies and meta-analyses showing that, you know, this this is pretty effective, and certainly there's no toxicity. So toxicity is a bit relative. It doesn't depend just on the dose. It also depends on the length of time that you give it. So there is some evidence that um, with certainly this one case of a hantavirus infection, uh, because in that study, he, he, he overall reduced the mortality by something like 80 uh, percent by doing this nine-day treatment of sodium selenite. Um, and you know if that was an experimental drug or something, the drug company would be just you know screaming from the rooftops about how fantastic their drug was. But you know here it is. Oh well, it's just this nutrient, and and people are skeptical, and uh, it, it, you can't even get people to pay attention. Um, and there are some uh, a whole bunch of anecdotal stuff about the Ebola outbreak um, in Liberia which is a whole nother story, um, where they did a, a small trial and, and initially got again of sodium selenite and they were probably using much higher, uh, well, actually about a similar dose, something probably you know close to 800 or 1000 micrograms a day. Um, uh, and it was sodium selenite when they first started. And, uh, and apparently the initial results were so promising that the nurses in this ICU, Uh, or or not ICU, um, Ebola treatment unit, ETU, um, one of the first ones that was set up in Liberia. Um, The nurses apparently thought that it was so obviously helpful that they insisted on giving it to patients in the control group as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But then that ran into a lot of controversy. It's been a very controversial um, approach. For some reason, all of the Mainstream organizations, whether it's Doctors Without Borders or the CDC or the UN or WHO uh, or NIH, they—they're all—they all are very, very skeptical and, and opposed, and, and think this is just, um, uh, you know, kind of a. Um, snake oil type of <laughs> treatment. Mm-hmm. And and luckily, uh, I'm happy in, in a way that, that at least in COVID, we're finally getting some really, really solid studies showing that, hey, this isn't just somebody's imagination. This isn't just somebody trying to sell a product. There's a real profound effect here. And maybe we're going to finally get to the bottom of it. So that's one of the um, silver linings of the uh, COVID cloud, <laughs> I mm-hmm.
1: hope. Right, right. Well, this has been really fascinating, Dr. Taylor. How would you like people to follow you online? Did you have anywhere to point them? I know I follow you on ResearchGate. So for the, the doctors and the practitioners listening, um, your papers are, are on ResearchGate. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to follow you?
0: Yeah, well, uh, we created a, a Facebook page. It's just called uh, Selenium.virology. selenium dot virology. Um, and it actually has a link to the re- research gate site. So that's there. And as, as the most, as the more important papers come out, um, we post them there, not just from, from myself and my collaborators, but also, uh, papers from other groups that are relevant to this topic. So for instance, the German study I mentioned, um, we've got a link to that and we have links to the uh, full text articles whenever possible or or reviews that come out. So for instance, this new review that I just mentioned, well, I'm gonna be putting that up on that uh, site soon. So anyway, if they just look for do Facebook, selenium.virology, they can find that site and 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 that's got a lot of links to, you know, things that we think are relevant to this topic. So, and and then they can get to the research gate site from there. So that's excellent.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. This has been very informative. And uh, to all of our listeners, go to drhedberg.com and just search for Dr. Taylor, and you'll see a full transcript of this interview there as well as links to his research and all the resources that we've talked about today. So take care, everyone. This is Dr. Hedberg, and I will talk to you soon.
0: If you enjoy The Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.